Well, we are used to living in a divided world. We are divided over almost everything, whether that be our politics, how we raise our children, how we spend our money, how we spend our free time. But it's not over just those big things that we're divided over. We're divided over the trivial stuff as well, like sports teams or where North Jersey and South Jersey split or the best place to get a cup of coffee. It's Rook, by the way. Um, <laughs> we're even divided over whether to call it Taylor Ham or pork roll, for crying out loud. We are used to living in a divided world. But this is not a recent development. The world has always been divided. Just the object that it's been divided over has changed as time has gone on. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we look at our passage today in John 7 that there, is, there are people that are divided over Jesus and his teaching. Now this has been building up in the Gospel of John prior to chapter 7. We started to see this crowd grumbling, this division forming about Jesus. But it's in John 7 and following that, boy, that division starts to get more pronounced. That division starts to get more hostile. That division starts to get a bit more fierce. And so today we're going to take a look as this plot unfolds. We're going to see that there is one sovereign agenda unfolding, that there are two camps in the crowd, that there are three ironic incidents, and that there are four exhortations for us today. Okay? So as we study this passage, we're going to be looking at one agenda, two camps, three ironies, and four exhortations. So the first thing, the first thing that we'll be looking at is that there is, in this passage, one sovereign agenda. Coursing through all 24 of these verses is God's sovereign plan and timetable. And that really helps us to make sense of this kind of confusing passage at times, right? You heard it read. I wanted all the verses read to see kind of what is going on here. And we see several instances in which we're kind of scratching our heads going, how do we make sense of this, right? So let's take a look at first uh, verses 8 and 10. So all eyes back in the Bible, John chapter 7, verse 8. Jesus is responding to his brothers and he says this, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And so Jesus first tells his brothers, he goes, look, you can go, but I'm not going. You can go up to the feast, but I'm not going to this feast. But then in verse 10, Jesus said, or it says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And so we have here that Jesus first tells his brothers that he's not going. And then just a few verses later, he does go up there. So what's going on? How do we make sense of that? Or similarly, take the fact that Jesus goes up in secret and he wants to remain anonymous. We just saw that in verse 10. But then in verse 14, it says about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And so Jesus wanted to remain secret. If he wanted to remain anonymous, going up in the middle of the temple and teaching kind of blew his cover, didn't it? Right? And so we, we, we kind of see this confusing things happening, that he goes up in secret, and yet he teaches publicly. 
We can also take a look at verse 1, where it says uh, that he, this is Jesus, would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews, as a side note, was not indicative of all the Jews in Jerusalem, but rather the religious leaders and those that were uh, uh, under their influence. Those Jews were the ones that were trying to kill him. But the point is that he stayed away from Judea because he feared the Jews and them trying to kill him. But then he goes to Judea, doesn't he? Right? And not only that, but he teaches in public. He puts a greater target on his back by going to Judea and teaching in public. So how do we make sense of these sorts of things? Well, I think that the only way that we can make sense of these seemingly confusing moves by Jesus is to recognize and understand that Jesus perfectly obeys the will of the Father. Jesus is not operating on his own timetable. He's operating on God's timetable. And so Jesus is not following the will of his unbelieving brothers who were coaxing him, even mocking him, to go up to the feast, probably to recoup some of the numbers that he lost after the whole bread of life discourse thing, right? So they're coaxing him. Come on, Jesus, why don't you go and and get some more followers for yourself? But Jesus operates on God's agenda, not man's agenda. And so when his brothers tell him to go up to the feast, he remains. And why is that? Well, I think it's simply because God did not direct him to go to the feast at that time. It didn't mean that he was to never go to the feast, but rather at that moment, his direction was to stay. But then some time passes and God tells him otherwise. God directs him, okay, now now is your time to go up to the feast. Jesus naturally and immediately obeys what the Father commands. Now, similarly, Jesus goes up to Judea in secret. Now, why would he do that? Well, again, I think it's simply because his Father directed him to do so. If Jesus did not go up in secret, perhaps there would have been shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Perhaps they would have tried to instate him as king. Perhaps they'd be waving palm branches. But God determined that this was not the time for that to happen. That wasn't God's agenda, but at a different feast down the road. This time, Jesus had to go up in secret. But then once there, God at some point whispers to his son, I need you to go up and teach my people. And so Jesus obliges. Jesus goes up and does exactly what the Lord had him do and exactly the Lord's timetable. So Jesus does not follow man's agenda. In fact, he doesn't even follow his own agenda. Instead, Jesus immediately, unequivocally, and perfectly obeys God's timetable. It is the one sovereign plan of God that weaves its way through this passage like a string through a tapestry. And so there is one agenda in this passage, and it is God's, and it happens on His timetable. And so now we're going to take a look at the two camps, the two camps that we see here in this passage. And so in this passage, as I said, we see this great division that is starting to form within the crowd. 
We see it very clearly in verses 11 through 13. So all eyes back in the Bible. Let's take a look at verses 11 through 13 together. John chapter 7, verse 11. The Jews were looking for him, that is Jesus, at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And so what we see here clearly is that there's these prominent divisions that are starting to form, that some people are saying, yeah, I'm on board with Jesus. He's a good man. But, but others are saying, no, absolutely not. He's leading the people astray. And so this division is starting to form. This schism is starting to form among the people. And it's clearly seen here in verses 11 through 13. But if you look later in the passage in, in verses 25 through 31 and also 40 through 52, we again see this uh, a greater and greater pronouncement of the division within the crowd. Greater hostility over Jesus. And so Jesus in our passage today he starts to address the crowd, namely the crowd that is opposing him. And what he wants to tell them is specifically uh, uh, how and why they are opposing him, why they are not following him. And we see that when he addresses the crowd in verses 16 through 19. So if we can take a look once again in our Bibles, John chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine. But his who sent me, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Let's stop right there. And so Jesus is telling the crowd, He's saying, if you choose to do God's will, if you desire to follow God's will, if you're on board with God's one sovereign plan and agenda, then you'll know that my teaching is from God. You'll know that I'm speaking in the authority of God, not my own authority. But he says the, to the people who, who do not follow God's will, who do not choose God's will, then they're not able to see, they're not able to see that Jesus is teaching from God. And so take a look at verse 19 with me. In verse 19, Jesus continues this conversation with the crowd. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you seeking to kill me? And so what Jesus says is, look, to the crowd, he says, look, you have no excuse You've been given God's will. You've been given the law of Moses. If we remember in Psalm 40, verse 8, the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. You see, Jesus is saying, you know God's will because you have the law. And yet none of you keeps it. That's where it stung right to the heart, Right? He told the crowd, you know God's will and yet you don't keep it. 
And so because you don't keep it, you don't desire to do God's will, and you are unable to see that my teaching is coming from God. Jesus says that you are blind to the fact that the very word of God is right in front of you. And so hand in hand with this, Jesus also pairs that the camp that is opposing Jesus is also seeking their own glory. We saw that in verse 17. Jesus kind of subtly says, look, if you teach on your own authority, then you're seeking your own glory. But Jesus makes it resoundingly clear in passages that surround this text. So in John chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus again is speaking to the crowd. And in here, he's speaking to the crowd who is opposing him for healing a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to the crowd, he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And again, in John 12, 43, right at the other end of this passage, the the author John is addressing and speaking of people who were afraid to follow Jesus because they feared the repercussions of, of being kicked out of the temple. And these people did not end up following Jesus. And this is what John says of them. He says, For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so as Jesus is addressing this crowd that is, that is speaking on their own authority and seeking their own glory... Jesus is saying that this is part of the camp that opposes them. For they seek glory for themselves from man as opposed to glorifying God. And so in this passage in John 7, 1 through 24, we start to see two camps arise. One camp that is in favor of Jesus. One camp that follows him, that that chooses and delights to do God's will. One that desires to glorify God. And yet there is another camp that opposes Jesus, another camp that, that, that seeks their own glory, that chooses to not do God's will, and so as a result does not submit to Jesus' teaching and to his authority. And so we have one sovereign agenda unfolding in this passage with two camps, one that opposes Jesus and one that follows Jesus. And now we come to the three ironies from this passage. The three ironies from this passage. So the first irony has to do with the Feast of Booths, or as it's also called, the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, So this feast is one of the three most important feasts in Jewish tradition. And thousands upon thousands of people would come from all over the region to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And at this feast, it was customary that they would build booths or tabernacles to live in for the duration of the feast. Even if they lived in Jerusalem, they had a house, they would still build these tabernacles and live in them outside. Now, the tabernacle was something that was very important in the Old Testament because the tabernacle was the very place where God's presence resided. Okay. Now, here's the irony. The irony is that though these people are building booths, building tabernacles, in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they completely miss the fact that Jesus has come to dwell among them. 
that Jesus has come to tabernacle among them. For you see, God came down, he took on flesh, and he tabernacled among them, as we see in John 1.14. And yet the people are completely oblivious to the fact that God has come to be with them and in their midst. Though they are living in tabernacles, though they are celebrating the feast of tabernacles, they don't recognize the true tabernacle that is in their midst. So that's the first irony. The second irony is found in verse 7. So if we all take a look now back in our Bible, in John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says this in response to his brothers. John 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So let's stop there. So the world hates Jesus because Jesus is the light that has come to shine in the darkness, to expose its evil, to expose its sin. And so by and large, the world hates and resents Jesus because he exposes our sin, he exposes our evil ways. The world would much rather be by itself in the darkness than to have the light shine on it. And so the ironic part, though, is that though the world hates Jesus, it is through Jesus that the world and everything in it was created. We remember in John 1, 3, that it says, uh, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The world hates the very one who created it. And what's more ironic is that, as we know from John 3, 16, God so loves the world. He so loves the world that he gave his one and only son that the one who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so the irony is that God loves the world. Yet the world hates his son through whom it was created. That's the second irony. Now the third irony of this passage is found in verses 3 through 5. So all eyes back in the Bible. John chapter 7 starting in verse 3. So Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And so Jesus' brothers, who, as we see, see in verse 5, they don't believe in Jesus. They're kind of mocking Jesus here. They're saying, hey, look, Jesus, if you want to be the spectacular public figure... If you want to be this famous religious figure, then why don't you just show yourself to the world? Do some more signs and miracles. Why don't you just go to Jerusalem and reveal yourself to the world? Now, the ironic thing is that Jesus will reveal himself to the world. But he's not going to do so at this time or even in this manner. No, Jesus is going to reveal himself to the world at Jerusalem, but it's going to be through the humiliation of the cross. It won't be through spectacular signs and miracles. It will be through mockery and 
through humiliation by dying in a Roman torture chamber. The irony is that Jesus will, will reveal himself to the world, but not the way that the brothers wanted, but will be on God's agenda and timetable. And so the three ironies of this passage are that at the Feast of Tabernacles, the people could not recognize the true tabernacle that was in their midst. And the second irony is that though God loves the world, the world hated his son whom created, who created it. And lastly, Jesus' brothers want him to reveal himself to the world through miracles. Yet Jesus will reveal himself to the world through the humiliation of the cross. And so we have one agenda, two camps, three ironies, and now we come to our four exhortations from the passage today. The first exhortation is this, take heart, take heart, the world will hate you but it hated Jesus first. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised that the world will hate you for being devoted to following Jesus. Don't be surprised that the world will hate you when you stand up boldly for Christ. Jesus encourages his disciples in his farewell discourse as he's on his way to the cross. He encourages his disciples saying this in John 15, verses 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because of your faith in Christ, because standing up boldly for Jesus and not shrinking back from your convictions, you might get passed over for that job promotion. You might lose some really close friends. You might even tarnish some relationships with family members. You might even be labeled as intolerant, homophobic, transphobic, prudish, old-fashioned, unintelligent, and weak. But what I want to encourage you today, brothers and sisters, is to worry less about the world has to say or what the world can do to you. And instead, treasure, take great joy, take delight in what God says of you when you suffer for his sake. That he says of you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Would we be like the apostles in Acts 5 after they are imprisoned and beaten and eventually released? What do they do? They leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And so let's not be a shade of gray of the world. Let's stand out boldly and unashamedly for the gospel of Christ. The world will hate you for it, but love the world in return by having your words, your actions, your deeds saturated with the gospel of grace. The second exhortation is this. Submit to Jesus' teaching because it is from God. We need to remember that, that this is not the teaching of a mere man, right? This, this teaching is, is not his own, but it's from God. 
like the sovereign creator of the universe, all-powerful, all-knowing God, that God, right? The God that, that designs and created every atom in the universe, every blade of grass, and every unique snowflake that falls to the ground. The God that directs every lightning bolt and rain drop that falls from the heaven. The God who sustains everything from the tiniest subatomic particle to the largest star hundreds of billions of light years away. This is the God that reveals himself in this word. And so do you think it's wise to ignore a teaching and counsel from him? So when we read the teachings of Jesus, whether that be to love your neighbor as yourself or to love your enemy or I am the way, the truth, and the life, remember that this is not the teachings of a mere man. No, these are the commands from the ever-living, holy, just, and righteous God of the universe. Submitting to Jesus' teachings will lead to eternal life. And they will also lead to suffering for his name's sake. But it will also be your greatest source of joy, hope, and satisfaction. So submit to Jesus' teachings because it is from God. The third exhortation from this passage is this. Seek God's glory, not your own. God alone is worthy of all of our praise, all the glory, and all of the honor. He alone deserves it. We see in Psalm 115.1, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Or Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You see, God created all things, sustains all things. He rescued us from our sin. He guides us. He provides for us. He protects us. And one day, He's coming back to renew all things. This is a God that is worthy of praise, that is worthy of honor, that is worthy of all the glory. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to steal glory from God, don't we? We love to be praised by other people. We want to be glorified for the accomplishments that we do. Maybe we really love being recognized at work and all the things that we've done at work, and so we try to subtly include those into conversations with friends and family. Or maybe you really want recognition for how you faithfully served in the children's wing at church. Or maybe you, you make that post on Facebook with the hope that you'll get tons of comments about how great you are. And we, we even want to be, we, we even want to receive praise from our spouse when we do the dishes, right? We are all susceptible. We're all susceptible to seeking praise from others instead of giving the glory to God. And so I want to encourage us all today. Seek God's glory, not our own. And finally, the last exhortation quickly is to judge with right judgment, not by appearances. This is the last verse in this chapter, or excuse me, in this section, verse 24. They see the crowd that was opposing Jesus, they were opposing him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And they thought that it was such an egregious offense that, he was, that that was worthy of killing Jesus, that it was worthy of, of death. 
And Jesus says in verses 21 through 23, he says, look, you heal, uh, excuse me, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And yet you're going to say that me making a man's whole body well is not acceptable to do on the Sabbath? He says, you have this misconception of the law. You've missed the intent. You're judging by appearances, not by judge, just or right judgment. And so in the same fashion, we too are not to judge others with unfounded, misconstrued, or unsubstantiated opinions. Rather, Jesus is calling us to be so grounded in the truth of this book, to be so rooted in the gospel and Jesus' teaching. And then and only then will we be able to judge with right judgments and not by appearances. And so, brothers and sisters, what camp are you in this morning? Are you in the camp that tries to operate on your own timetable? Or the camp that submits to God's sovereign agenda? The camp that merely wants to see miracles? Or the camp that wants to see and savor Christ? The camp that blends in with the world? Or the camp that is hated by the world? The camp that picks and chooses the teachings of Jesus that they'll follow or the camp that entirely submits to Jesus and his teaching and his authority. The camp that cries out, crucify him, crucify him, or the camp that cries out, my Lord and my God. What camp are you in this morning? Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that he came down to die on a cross to save us from our sins so that we could be brought back into a right relationship with you. Forgive us, God, for the times and the ways that we do not choose to do your will, the ways that we rob you of your glory, the ways that we try to operate on our own agenda as opposed to seeking you in your agenda. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we have rebelled. And help us, God, to submit to you, to submit to your teaching and your authority, and take great delight in picking up our cross and following you daily. That we would take great joy in suffering for your name's sake. For when we suffer... We bring glory to your name because you are worthy. You are worthy. And so, King Jesus, help us. Help us to be in the camp that delights in you, that follows you, and submits themselves to you and to your glory. We ask these things in the Son's name. Amen.